Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash HHV. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Bayer has had no involvement in the selection of the speakers, the development of the activity, the agenda, or the materials. Welcome to this Peer Voice on Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Welcome, everybody,、uh, to the CME event,、uh, obviously focusing on uh, uh, prostate cancer, advanced prostate cancer. We'll speak about both castration sensitive and castration resistant disease、uh, tonight. So, we will start with metastatic castration sensitive disease. And、uh, we, we decided to do that and probably to spend more time on this、uh, setting of the disease because, simply because there h a s been so many progresses for these men、um, in the last decade or so and even in the, in the very recent past. So, basically, we will show you the data. Try to show how they fit with the current environment and in, in our practice. And we will also have the opportunity to try our best to answer your questions. And then we will move to castration resistant disease and mostly non metastatic castration resistant disease. And we'll do exactly the same. So, brief summary of the data, how this can be incorporated in clinical practice, and then QAs. Uh, I'll be very brief on my introduction. And just on one slide, I'd like to show you the natural history of the disease. And I tend to, to write in blue the drugs we were playing with, say, 10 years ago. Unfortunately, this was based only on androgen deprivation therapy, dostaxel, and zerulinic acid. And, well, 10 or, 10 or 15 years now. And you can see now in red all the new drugs that came、um, during this time frame and where we've been using them, starting, of course, from the far right with first abiraterone and zalutamide, cabazitaxel, radium 223, and more recently, lutetium PSMA,、uh, PARP inhibitors,、uh, showing overall survival benefit, denizumab plus or minus replacing zerulinic acid. And then the big move from the last、um, five or ten years, using these drugs, or at least some of them, earlier and earlier in the course of the disease,、uh, not only for CRPC, but also for metastatic castration sensitive disease, non metastatic CRPC, and、uh, more and more in PSA with biochemical、uh, failures, but also in high risk localized disease with aberratron, for example, in Stampede. So, this is a very important move, and of course, many more patients tend to benefit from that. Well, thanks very much, and、uh, also from my side, welcome to the symposium. We're very happy that you're actually here.、Um, and、uh, we would like to talk about、um, treatment intensification and what that means for our patient population. So, as you're all experts in prostate cancer, you're all aware that the treatment landscape has dramatically changed, I would say, over the last couple of years. And in a very short time, we received a lot of new recommendations、um, to offer for our patients with、uh, metastatic prostate cancer. 
So for more than 70 years, we used uh, ADT alone until around um, 2014, 2015, the addition of docetaxel to ADT was shown to result in a significant clinical benefit for our patients. That was a big step, and we all adjusted, and this is what we offer to our patients. It only took two years, though, until then, we could offer another option, which was a new hormonal agent, or as referred to in this symposium, an androgen receptor pathway inhibitor, or RP. So we can add this RP to ADT, what was shown in Latitude, uh, Stampede, Arches, Titan. That did result in a longer and a significant benefit for our patients. Now, that was the situation roughly uh, four years ago. But as you know, again, we all realized a significant change only a couple of years later when another intensification method was put on the market, and that was the addition of a new agent to docetaxel and ADT. So the addition of docetaxel to an RP and ADT did result in another significant clinical benefit for our patients, and that was shown in Arizins and the PEACE-1 trial, which we'll be discussing with you uh, in the next uh, 90 minutes. But it won't stop there. And I mean, when you look at how fast the landscape was growing over time, you could anticipate that there's more coming and actually coming very soon. So we will be awaiting next year the results of the Aronaut and Arasex uh, trial. And then the much-awaited arm that was, for some of us, missing in the Arasense trial, the combination of dilutamide and ADT will be shown um, in the next trial. So the story will evolve and won't stop here, of course. And I think that's all for the benefit uh, of our patients. So this is the situation at the current moment. And of course, now we are facing a difficult and complex problem because here we are with our patient in our office, uh, in our clinic, and we have to base our decision on a parameter which at best should objectively tell us what to do because it's becoming more and more complex. So the question is, which patients with MHSPC benefit from docetaxel the most? And this is shown here. This is uh, the benefit from docetaxel um, in five years overall survival in percentage. And as you see here on the very right hand, uh, the high volume synchronous metastatic prostate cancer patients profit the most, followed by the high volume metachronos patients. So the high volume cohort of patients is the cohort that seems to benefit from the addition of docetaxel the most, but also the low volume synchronous patients do pretty well. It's only the low-volume metachronous patients that cause a problem and where we have to discuss what to offer our patients in that clinical scenario. And based on that, and that's, neat, that's not the only clinical parameter that we have, we'll discuss more than that, but it is quite evident. Richard, sorry. sorry to interrupt you, but I think this is very important. If we can uh, maybe come back to, to the slide. Uh, you know, this data come from a very large meta-analysis of more on individual data from more than 2,000 men. And I think it really helped us clarify the debate about whether the stack cell should be used or not in low volume, high volume, et cetera, et cetera. The timing is also very important, as you just said. De novo versus relapse. And I think the key message is that if you're facing a man 
with a relapse after prostatectomy or radiation therapy, and he has just a few metastases, is just not a candidate for the stark cell chemotherapy for castration-sensitive disease. It's 0% benefit, crystal clear. Now, you can see the all three other subgroups which actually derives some benefit, around 10%, as you just said. But I think this is clinically very important to us for, for, for decision-making. Um, and that's, I think, we have to repeatedly, you know, see to really know what to base our decisions on in clinical practice. Now, um, when we think about how our mechanisms work, to actually attack prostate cancer cells, then we have various ways of doing that. Uh, the androgen receptor pathway is one that is really of utmost importance, and we base our decisions mainly on, on that mechanism. However, if you combine that with a different mechanism of action, um, which are in that case taxanes, you actually delay the progress of your patients, and that will result in a better clinical outcome of your patients, as shown here in this graph. So having a synergism of various mechanisms of action, and that, I think it is logic, if we think about it, does delay the progress of our patients, which is actually what we have in mind. I think that's the ultimate goal uh, when treating our patients, um, and also looking at quality of life, of course. Doing that, that will eventually result in clinical data. And this is taken from uh, a recent publication by Karim and colleagues who showed the effects of treatment intensification as pointed out in the ESMO guidelines. So when you look at those, what's really important, and I think you don't need to look at every number, but what you see is that the arms are shown docetaxel and ADT versus ADT alone, as shown in Charted, GTUG, and Stampede. Then you have all the combinations of a new hormonal agent with ADT versus placebo ADT, um, Latitude, Stampede, Arches, Enzamet, you know them all. And then, of course, you have Aerosense and Peace One having a even more treatment intensification, putting on docetaxel plus the RP and ADT. And what you have here on the right side, you have the outcome in months uh, when it comes to overall survival. And that's a situation which is, for us clinicians, I think super important because this is what the patients will ask us when you give him the drug. He will ask us, what's the benefit and what are the side effects of my treatment? And here, when you look at the absolute survival gain in months, this is what our treatment intensification, stratified by what we're actually applying, is resulting in which I think gives us a very nice option to treat our patients. And now, we discussed it before. Um, we discussed the timing, we discussed the, the um, amount of metastases that the patient has. Um, so the disease characteristics, volume, timing, stage, are really important, and I think we're all following that. But of course, the patient characteristics play a very important role too age of the patient, comorbidities, which means the toxicity towards that individual patient sitting in front of us. Drug-drug interactions play a major role. And then, and this opens up a whole new field, and I think this ESMO, if anything, for me, has shown that selection of patients is key. We had a, a session this morning 
with many positive, many negative trials, but the, the, the message was the, uh, the correct selection of patients, which can be hard, but that's the goal that we have based sometimes on genetic bi biomarkers, and we'll discuss other biomarkers, but those are the factors that we usually have, and it boils down to the individual patients that we are facing, his wishes, his thoughts, what he expects from the treatment, which can be very different, as you all know. Now, we have also other markers, and I think um, that slide, if you allow me, is something that we have to keep in mind because this will help us in the future to base our recommendation on. So the first slide, the PSMA addition trial, just is shown to highlight that PSMA can be used as a biomarker because if you do PET scans, and I think all of you um, ask for a PET scan in various clinical scenarios for your patients, the PSMA positivity is something that can be used. You all know the vision trial. You know that the positivity of the PSMA expression does correlate to patient outcome following ligand treatment. You can look at other, of course, um, studies looking at HRR mutations, and uh, you've seen the amplitude, Talapro, um, this morning, magnitude. This is something that is very important that we already are, have been implementing in our clinical practice uh, for certain clinical scenarios. We'll talk about this in a second. And then, you know, if you look at P10, that's something that's going to come up in the future more and more. But P10 deficiency, as shown in the Capitello trial with uh, Capivazatip, uh, is something that might be easier to use when it comes to testing um, and will be helping us to stratify the patients that will profit from that certain drug. And then we have uh, trials that were not um, selecting the patients based on biomarkers. The Cyclone Tri, um, you may have heard the drug, uh, abemaciclib, uh, CDK4-6 inhibitor, um, which uh, we have been doing various trials, but uh, very important trials. Looking forward for these outcomes, not biomarker selected. And then Keynote 991, um, I was you know, allowed to present this trial this morning. It was a negative trial. It was patients with MHSPC that, re that received pembrolizumab in addition to enzalutamide and ADT versus enzalutamide and ADT alone. No significant difference in OS and uh, RPFS. So that was a negative. We didn't select patients based on biomarkers. Maybe we should have. CDK12, MSI high, TMB high, all these biomarkers, if you add them up, this is actually more than BRCA. So uh, we may now go back and check these data because maybe we find patients who actually did profit from the addition of pembolizumab, but we weren't able to show that because we just looked at the whole population so far. So maybe that's something we want to discuss now because I think there's a lot of food for thought that we have. Um, uh, my last slide is just the takeaways. Because the takeaways really summarizes what we have been talking about so far. I think it becomes crystal clear that ADT monotherapy is just not sufficient in uh, this day and age. We need treatment intensification. And this doesn't exclude all the patient groups that are sometimes put forward. All the patients are so frail, so old. We'll discuss them later on. Um, doublets, which means ADT and then RP or ADT and chemotherapy show a significant benefit versus ADT monotherapy. And if you then add the RP, abradorone, derludomide, to ADT and chemotherapy, which results in a triplet treatment, that will lead you to a risk-independent survival benefit for patients with MH-SPC. 
There are side effects, we won't deny that, but I think as experienced uh, urooncologists, uh, medical oncologists, whatever you call us, I think we're all in the same boat, treating the same patients, trying to be get the best possible outcome for our patients, whatever you are by profession. I think these side effects can be safely managed if we care about the patients, and that's the main message so far. Absolutely. So, um, so thank you so much. What a wonderful review of so many uh, wonderful points. But just to, to speak to your comments about the, the studies that are in process and uh, the challenges we face. Do we not personalize so that we can apply the data to everyone and give everyone a chance to benefit? Or do we personalize to ensure that the treatments are given to those who may benefit most? We'll have positive trials and limit exposure for patients who will not benefit to toxicities that are unnecessary. And I think we're always struggling with the pull in each direction. I think as we do develop these biomarkers and advance in this way, uh, one of the things I find so interesting is that we need to also standardize and understand how we test the biomarkers. Because for example, the iPotential 150 study that was looking at the CDK4 pathway, or sorry, was, was similarly looking at the, the P10 deficient uh, pathway um, with an AKT mTOR inhibitor was actually a negative trial when we look at the all-comers. And even by IHC, the signal for those P10 deficient patients was less robust than with next-generation sequencing identifying the P10 deficient patients. And in Capitello, you're very involved in this. Um, this is this is IHC because this is practical, but, uh, but also is maybe an imperfect way. It's, it's very interesting and complex as we, do, as we investigate. I agree, but uh, I guess NGS is not that easy to do for everybody and, and, no. and more expensive. Uh, and this is why you know, those trials have chosen to use uh, IHC. Uh, hopefully we'll see better finding in, in Capitello, uh, testing Capiversity. I think probably also um, a key thing is when you move from phase one, two to phase three, you need to make sure that you've kind of circumvent the main toxicities and because, you know, when I saw the data of the portocetib you were referring to, the portocetib trial, many patients actually, in a phase three context, actually had to stop their drug or discontinue it rapidly um, because of, of toxicity. And at the end of the day, they were comparing kind of abiraterin versus abiraterin. No wonder why it's, it's, it's negative. So hopefully, with capivorcetib or the trials, this will be better mitigated. We'll see. Absolutely. Fantastic. So I think I would really invite Alicia to take over and continue uh, giving you practical examples uh, of that situation. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so thank you. And now we'll talk about actually putting this into practice. And thank you so much to Christian for laying this out. The things that we think about in clinic today, as we've heard multiple times, is this de novo or synchronous metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, or is this recurrent after prior treatment of the primary and the prostate? Is this high risk or low risk? This is based on the latitude criteria, so it's important for us to remember again, these are slightly different criteria than we used for charted and, and our other high-low risk definition. 
high volume, low volume. We, we have talked about this in piece one, also in charted. And then the fitness of the patient, the comorbidities, the drug-drug interactions, all of these things must be in our minds um, as we're choosing. Uh, I think that uh, your, your logic oncologists, medical oncologists, hopefully always have a job because this is too complex for a computer, I, I at least hope, um, but, but so, so important. So let's go through some cases and apply some of these factors. So this first patient is a 61-year-old patient who came in with an abnormal uh, rectal exam, a very high PSA at 181. Bone scan was performed that demonstrated six bone metastases, and a CT scan demonstrated four lymph nodes positive um, that were all greater than two centimeters in the prostate area, also positive, and, and the pelvis. Um, Gleason score here was a grade group four, so a four plus four equals eight. This patient is healthy, 61, no comorbid uh, diseases. We want to treat the patients on our best uh, intuitions and, and the data. Very good. So um, as we think about this, I wonder, before we move on to the Arisense data, of course, going into the triplets, um, Christian, in your practice, is this a similar approach that you would take for a patient in this setting? Yes, I think this is a very straightforward patient. Uh, I think uh, we all sit down with the patient and discuss the options that we have. But in that clinical scenario, high-risk, high-volume patient, I think uh, treatment intensification is the key. Um, we all know how we will have to talk to our patients but I don't doubt that the patient will agree to do this, this, this treatment because it gives him the best possible outcome, which he will show us. So for me, there was no question. And Professor Fazazi, your thoughts? Uh, well, I was fortunate enough to participate to both Piece 1 and Arasen, so I'm really convinced, to be honest, <laughs> that a triplet uh, is the way forward right now, at least, for, for such a gentleman who is fit, de novo disease, and I think this is very important, and uh, a multiple bone metastasis, six or so. Um, as you said rightly, or Christian, or that was Christian, metastatic uh, castration-sensitive disease is heterogeneous, even at an individual level, and uh, we never know which clone we're going to target. And right now we don't have a biomarker to tell us whether we should use chemo or an AR pathway inhibitor, for example. We now have demonstration that three drugs is better than two, and I think this is really what we should do. Absolutely. And, uh, and to your point, the, the, the clones that, that Christian showed, you know, if with the triplet we are attacking potentially multiple clones should they exist with multiple areas or potential areas for resistance. So to move along to some of the data again, the Arisense data, uh, just as a reminder, was uh, a, a patient population with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. They could have had de novo, they could have had recurrent disease, although as you can see on the slide, a majority of these patients had de novo metastatic disease and a majority had high volume metastatic disease as defined actually on a subsequent analysis of the data. This was not defined going into the trial. Patients were randomized to ADT docetaxel and darolutamide versus ADT docetaxel. So all patients in this study had docetaxel. And what we saw was that there was a prolonged overall survival uh, with the addition of the darolutamide here and a prolonged time to castration resistance. 
And piece one, this was a, a patient population that was all de novo metastatic. And this patient population came into the study um, getting a quite complex randomization. But ultimately, um, this is the information for those patients who were treated with ADT, docetaxel, and abiraterone versus ADT and docetaxel. Um, and what we can see is that there was a longer radiographic progression-free survival with the addition of abiraterone to the ADT docetaxel versus that ADT docetaxel alone, as well as overall survival in the overall cohort, as we can see on the right. And just to emphasize again, this is a, a patient population that's 100% de novo disease. Um, and, and I think that is, is critical, as Kareem said, a higher risk population. And so to move on to um, case two, we have a 51-year-old patient with a PSA of 30. This patient has three bone metastases, a Gleason score of eight, no prior therapy for prostate cancer. And to remind everyone, this patient actually meets high-risk criteria by latitude because three bone metastases and a Gleason score here of eight, but this patient does not meet high volume criteria by charted. So we threw in a, a tricky patient for everyone. We'll start with uh, Kareem this time first. What are your thoughts on this patient? For patients with de novo disease, uh, we see very similar benefit in radiographic progression-free survival in patients with low volume and in pa versus patients with high volume with a triplet systemic treatment versus what we see uh, with a tablet. Uh, um, for OS, at the moment, we see a benefit for patients with high volume disease, but when we analyze the data in piece one, actually most men with low volume disease were alive, so the data were immature, so we, we just don't know. It's not negative, it's just that we still don't know as I'm speaking. Hopefully, in about a year from now, we will have maturity and we, we will be able to analyze. But again, our PFS benefit is really similar. So that would be, uh, and, and this one, this gentleman is, is young and fit. He's really borderline definition, and, and we wrote this uh, on, on purpose. And, and you need to remember that in medicine in general, and here in prostate cancer specifically, it's not black and white, of course. And if, you, if we look at the bone scan, and we count three bone metastases, maybe you'll see three, I'll see four, you'll see three, or vice versa, et cetera, because it's so difficult. And sometimes one bone metastasis, for example, in the pelvis, which was the case in this gentleman, can be a fusion of two metastases. So how do you count that? Just one or two? So it's very relative. And of course, not even speaking about PSMA PET. So I, I think... It's, it's more a continuum, and I, I, to be honest, I don't really see any other cancer where we really count the metastasis for decision-making. And, and I think it's a bit you know, artificial in prostate cancer doing that. And coming back to the data, it's not that supported. Again, you saw the meta-analysis. In patients with de novo disease, there's a benefit of the staxel chemotherapy across the board, just one metastasis versus 100 which is not found in patients with a lapse. For the radiation to the prostate, we have three randomized trials. One is positive for overall survival, stampede, and two are actually negative, HORAD and PIS-1. Still, I would be in favor of doing radiation therapy to this, to this gentleman, or discuss that with him, at least on the ground of what we found in PIS-1, which is prevention 
of severe urological morbidity when the patients were eventually progressed. And we could show that indeed radiation therapy up front can prevent the onset of this late uh, nasty uh, side effect of the cancer. Even if I'm not totally sure that we will help the patients in terms of overall survival with the radiation. So my preference would be for five. Well, thank you, thank you for that. And I would love to hear uh, from you, Dr. Gratsky. Always impressed by how Karim, you know, elaborates his thoughts, you know, all these data in detail. My, I'm a urologist, my approach is a more simple one. I would say this, ha this gentleman has an oligometastatic disease. We could discuss the definition of this being in three or four, you said it, you know, and it doesn't really matter. He has anywhere between three and five metastases. So I think, I mean, I'm deeply convinced that the treatment of the primary tumor is mandatory. And we have learned by Stampede and Hart, as you said, that radiation works. And we also just heard that ADT alone is not enough. So it's ADT plus an RP and radiation. Whether I give the patient docetaxel depends on the conversation that I have with them. I would also like to mention that there is trials ongoing to evaluate the role of surgery in that setting. It is not recommended right now. It is not a treatment option. We shouldn't do this. But there are trials, especially in the US, the SWOC trial going on to look at the fact whether treatment of the primary using a radical prostatectomy would result in similar results than radiation, just to mention that. Thank you both. And here's just another little wrinkle. Would you also add radiation uh, to the metastases. Imagine we had a PSMA PET that confirmed that there are only these three sites of disease, and this is an old-fashioned hand raise, everybody. Who would add SBRT radiation to those three areas of metastatic disease? It looks like at least a few people. Yeah, I think we would think about it as well, um, as long as we... Um, as long as we treated the, the prostate and included the pelvic nodal bed as well, where there were some, some lesions. So um, interesting, this is a very much evolving area. Um, so thank you everyone for participating. So when we go back to the data, this is, these are our outcomes by volume. We see that the addition of darolutamide similarly improved overall survival in uh, high volume. And in low volume, it looks like there's a trend at least in the direction of improvement, but this data is not mature, but we have had a final data cut on Arisen. So we will never actually have uh, further data here. Um, slight separation of curves, uh, difficult to tell small numbers here in the low volume cohort. But when we break this up by risk, as defined by the latitude trial, as I said previously, um, the high-risk cohort, the low-risk cohort, again, both seems to actually much more clearly benefit here across the board on these risk levels. Um, there are some uh, greater numbers of patients in these analyses, making it a little bit easier to actually do that assessment. When we look at the piece one data, we can see overall survival by the high volume patient population uh, clearly separated. And the radiographic progression-free survival data is on the bottom of this uh, page. Those, those hazard ratios, as we can see there, clearly showing a benefit in RPFS for the high volume patients. On the right-hand side of the slide, the low volume data, quite immature, um, and so unable to tell a difference there in overall survival, but more data cuts will be coming. RPFS clearly showing a benefit that's statistically significant even in the low volume patient population there at the bottom. When we look though, as Dr. Fazazi has said, other outcomes may benefit from radiation to the prostate as is demonstrated in piece one. This is data that came out just this summer, new data. 
we can potentially radiate the prostate in high-volume and low-volume patients and see a prolongation in castration-resistant-free survival. And on the right, we can see the overall survival curves separating out here, not statistically significantly different, but those patients who have the top line or the abiraterone plus docetaxel plus radiation patient population um, potentially eking out a little bit more benefit there. And the radiation seemed to be most effective when combined with the abiraterone in this uh, in study. And I wonder, Dr. Fizazi, any comments here for us to take home beyond the, um, the, the less urologic complications that you also mentioned? Sure. Uh, so, so, so first, it was not necessarily a good news, of course, not to see overall survival benefit uh, with a radiation to the prostate in PIS1. Uh, again, I, of course, I don't have a final... Um, uh, explanation for that, and, and, and this was the same in HORAD, by the way, where there was no overall survival benefit. The only trial positive was Stampede. Um, it may be because the magnitude of a trial Stampede made a difference, but really we don't see a trend in PIS1. It could be also imaging issues. We were not using the same burn scan in the UK versus in France or in the Netherlands at this time. We were systematically using burn scan plus CT scan uh, in front and in, I believe in the Netherlands. So it might have, have shown, uh, make a, a difference as, uh, as to whether we were calling a spot a metastasis or something else. Now, it could be also that in piece one, abiraterone and systemic treatment in general with dostaxel makes a difference uh, so that the, the benefit linked to radiation therapy is lost. It, it actually could be. Well, but on, on the other hand, the good news is that, again, urologic symptoms can be prevented. Castration-resistant uh, resistance can be prevented, thanks to the radiation. And it appears that there is a possible synergy between aberration and radiation, as uh, shown here, and uh, other curves support, uh, support this finding. So again, I would mostly recommend, or keep recommending local radiation therapy to my patients with oligometastic disease, as Christian also already alluded to, based on those grounds, even if I'm not totally convinced that overall survival is actually improved. Thank you. All right, our last case in this section, an 82-year-old gentleman. He uh, actually has a, 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 quite an elevated PSA, as you can see here. He has high-volume disease on bone skin and CT, a Gleason 9 prostate cancer. He, is, he meets the criteria for frailty by the G8 with a G8 score of less than 14. His score was only 11. He has multiple comorbidities, as we can also see here, with multiple medications used to treat those and has limited social support. So quite a challenging situation for this 82-year-old gentlemen. So um, I think just to go through in the interest of time, a hand raise here. Would being symptomatic versus asymptomatic make a difference to you? If you think that you would change your treatment decision if the patient was symptomatic, please raise your hand. Okay. I see a number of people. I imagine that this might be intensification if the patient has significant symptoms, but of course it could also be deintensification because you need to help a frail patient. But either way, that is important. Absolutely, that's why we asked the question. And I think it's important that we do have some data on quality of life from the Arisense triplet uh, therapy study. Um, we saw that there was a longer time to patients feeling worse in prostate-specific symptoms with the addition of darolutamide to ADT docetaxel versus um, that uh, ADT docetaxel standard of care there. 
And we also know that in terms of the adverse events of interest, these were relatively similar to the placebo or to the ADT chemotherapy arm between the ADT chemotherapy and darolutamide. And here we see that the drug-drug interactions are relatively little uh, with docetaxel, and we also know that in general there are relatively fewer drug-drug uh, interactions with darolutamide than some of our other options, though all are certainly options for treating our patients, just important to continue, consider here. Um, we have the PIECE-1 uh, data outcomes by age, which I would love to have Dr. Fazazi comment on. This was a, a recently reported analysis uh, by your team. Right. So, so one thing we found was that, remember in piece one, some patients received dostaxel, some patients did not. And actually, investigators could mostly uh, uh, decide what they, what they found was most appropriate according to age, maybe volume of disease, but also fitness, all these things. And what we found was that a patient in the elderly who was candidate for dostaxel chemotherapy actually benefited from the addition from uh, abiraterone, indicating that fitness is also, uh, and of course this is subjective, but is also a good way to identify who benefit from treatment intensification, including for abiraterone. On the other hand, if you take the same elderly population, but basically patients who are not selected as candidate for chemotherapy, the benefit of abiraterone, which was just, was actually much more modest, if any. So I think this is very important to know, and I think more data will come soon regarding abiraterone in the elderly and how best we can use uh, this agent. Because, of course, it's tempting to use abiraterone in the elderly, um, given that it's generally quite well tolerated, although you have to use a corticosteroid and you might, uh, some patients might actually lose their muscle, the hypertension might be an issue. But I guess many of us uh, recognize that enzalutamide is associated often with cognitive impairment, falls and fractures, uh, in a, at least in a minority of men in the elderly, so it's tempting to go for AB. But it's perhaps much more complicated than, than just that. And I think it's fair to say that we don't have an ideal treatment in the elderly as we are speaking. Yes, ag agreed. That is very much uh, fair. And as we just heard, toxicities here may be slightly different where we do see um, the older patients may have some more frequent um, adverse events. And then just a very brief comment on P6. Sure, this is, this is an academic platform of phase three trials that we are conducting in Europe. And instead of doing you know, a randomized trial testing A versus B for everybody, uh, we recognize, we spoke about it already with Christian, that we should go for molecular subgroups, but this is mostly led by the pharma industry, of course, because those are their drugs. And in the academic world, we want to go for clinical subgroups. For example, Patients with oligometastic disease are currently randomized in the P6 oligopresto phase 3 trial. This is super rapidly unrolling. We have randomized already more than 350 men or so. So hopefully in less than a year from now, we're done. We just spoke about patients with vulnerability. So hard to treat. Nobody really knows how to best handle these patients. Should we go for intensification? Should we use intermittent ADT? Who knows? Here we're going to randomize ADT versus ADT plus darolutamide for these frail patients. And very soon, 
we're going to start, hopefully, uh, early next year, two randomized phase three trials according to response to, to assist ongoing systemic treatment, whatever that is, at six months based on PSA. Good responders, so basically those with a PSA of zero, will be randomized uh, between just continuing their ongoing treatment and de-escalation, probably stopping treatment and restarting at progression if needed. We don't know. Of course, it's tempting to do it, but we don't really know whether it's safe. On the other hand, patients who are poor responders, so detectable PSAs at six-month time, will be randomized to get further intensification therapy with lutetium PSMA. Wonderful. We look forward to that, for sure. And just so to summarize, we have already heard treatment intensification with ADT and an AR pathway inhibitor with or without chemotherapy is the standard of care. ADT alone should be an exception. Decisions regarding what to combine with our ADT are going to be based on multiple factors, including those patient characteristics, the prostate cancer characteristics, patient preferences and needs, including their support system, and certainly physician factors like their, their comfort with different treatment options. And hopefully we can control that and we can become more comfortable with these therapies as they move forward. But ADT alone is no longer uh, the optimal option for a vast majority of our patients. So we'll move on to our next section here. And those are questions. Yes, first one. Yes, Please. thank you. We've received quite many. Uh, let's try to, to answer them with, with brief response if we can. So in a scenario where uh, someone has been using a triplet systemic therapy with a good response, would you consider eventually radiation therapy to the remaining metastasis, say at six months or eight months? You want to start, Alicia? Sure. I, you know, this is such an interesting question because we talk about this in our clinical practices. And I think that when you're weighing the, the risks and the benefits and the pros and the cons in this particular situation, I always talk to patients about the complications of radiation, which in general are relatively few. Um, and so if the patient has interest and if we think that we can actually capture all of the areas of spread with the radiation. Um, we do do this in select patients. I have to say, I have hesitation. If the patient has very high volume disease, this is not going to happen. And it is usually in the context of ensuring that we think, well, the things that made this patient high volume may not have been, they may have been noise. They may not have actually been prostate cancer or, or some of those considerations. But um, this is the question that is asked in the clinic. And, and I, don't, I don't have the right answer. I just, I can acknowledge that we are asking this too. Thank you. Christian, is it also your practice? Would you consider it or not? I mean, Alicia, you said it. It's an area of very limited evidence. And uh, toxicity is not the issue, as you said in a patient with limited um, uh, tumor volume uh, in the remaining metastases, so I, I usually offer that. Uh, so I think the precision by radiation oncologists is very high in that respect, uh, so we can safely offer this, whether it works, and I will be very open and very honest with the patient, I won't be able to tell, but in a scenario where I tell the patient to intensify treatment, I think it makes sense to also include those metastases, that's my can I make one more comment, though? I, I do think that the PIECE1 data from presented at ASCO does tell us that we, 
we absolutely can consider radiation of the prostate in these high-volume patients. So not, I'm not commenting now on the SBRT to other areas, but radiation to the prostate, I think, is something that we now need to consider in high-volume patients. Obviously not for everyone, but there are some benefits coming out of piece one that should make us think about this paradigm again, I think. I agree. Uh, another question about uh, specific situations where someone face a gentleman with more lytic lesions than osteoblastic, would that change your indication? Would you even in a low volume man, for example, would, you, would that be a good reason for you to consider triplet therapy, systemic therapy? So that would mean in a case, because I'm so usually opting for... bone metastasis, mostly lytic. Right. Not, not, not osteoblastic. So in a situation where I otherwise would not opt for triplet, would I then offer triplet? I mean, I would offer triplet anyway, because we've learned that synchronous, low volume, there is an obvious benefit for triplet treatment, including docetaxel. So I would offer it anyway, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be osteoblastic or lytic uh, metastases. Um, if the patient is hesitant, I would actually discuss exactly what you said with the patient, uh, telling him the difference between the osteoblastic and lytic uh, metastases, and maybe highlighting that in that situation, docetaxel would even be of more importance, and then see how this conversation goes. But I would definitely do that, yes. Okay. Yeah, Alicia? I would agree. I would agree. Okay. Um, a comment about transaminase increase, uh, which is a significant issue with triplet. Um, do you, well, do you agree, and how do you handle it, and is it true for all drugs? Yeah, so I, I think that certainly watching, watching liver function is absolutely critical when we're using docetaxel, when we're using abiraterone, even darolutamide. These are things that we need to watch and keep our patients safe. Um, I think that the way that I start a triplet is to start ADT, and then I layer on the ARPI, and then I layer on the docetaxel. Not everyone does this the same way, but that allows me to try to understand where are the LFT abnormalities coming from. If they are coming from the ARPI, then at least I have that understanding, and maybe I can switch to an alternate medication. If they're coming from the docetaxel, Maybe I stop the ARPI and see if, uh, maybe dose reduce the docetaxel. Can I do better if I remove one of the other stresses on the liver, um, complete the docetaxel, add the ARPI back in after it's over? There are all kinds of tweaks and twists that we can make, but the layering strategy from, in my practice at least, it helps me to understand where the LFT abnormalities are coming from, which is the way that I best operate in terms of trying to mitigate them. Thank you so much. So someone is commenting about the second case uh, we actually you presented, Alicia, and uh, he or she's saying that when when you think about dostaxel, it's because it's a high volume patients, and and when he or she thinks about radiation therapy to the primary, it's a low volume. However, in the second case, all of you preferred uh, intensification systemic treatment uh, with a, with potentially a triplet and local radiation. Uh, why is that? So, yeah. would you like we to can, come back to this one? Comment on this. Uh, so, this patient did have a low volume metastatic hormone sensitive disease. This was de novo, however, and it was also a patient with high risk by latitude criteria. So, the reason that I think about this, there are several folds. So, one, we think about radiation to the prostate in low volume disease, just as, as you say. 
now with PACE-1, I also think about that in, in certain, some patients, many patients with high volume disease, uh, particularly those with local symptoms that uh, I think may be improved or prevent complications in the future. Um, but why would we then use a triplet systemic therapy here? Well, this patient um, had de novo disease. De novo metastatic disease in a young patient is a patient that I'm going to talk about being aggressive with. We saw that for de novo metastatic disease, there is some incremental benefit, it appears, with docetaxel. And so absolutely, this is something that I would talk to that patient about um, when that patient is younger, healthier, and able to tolerate. And I am not willing to give up the potential benefit of that multi-targeted uh, approach of using the docetaxel and the AR signaling inhibitors, uh, especially in a, in a young person. Would love to hear your thoughts, Christian. I agree with everything that you said. I mean, it was very close between four and five, if you remember, between adding docetaxel or not. Everybody agreed that, most of us agreed that radiation, ADT in an RP would be um, mandatory, plus or minus docetaxel. And I agree completely with Alicia because I think, um, this is a young gentleman. He asked for the best possible treatment option. And I lay down all the options that he has. And when we talked about the mechanisms of actions that we can offer, combining two of those, and actually now three of those with radiation, I think it is very, sometimes I try to be very simple to the patient. I offer the most mechanisms of action that I can actually have in my armamentarium to help you get the best clinical outcome. And that does involve docetaxel. And um, this 51 year, if I remember correctly, young well, gentleman is probably going to want to have the most intensified treatment because he wants to live. And based on the data that we have, low volume, de novo, we have very good data for docetaxel. So I'll offer that. Super, thank you. We, we have other questions, but there are more about individual cases, to be honest. So it's, I think it, it would take probably too much time to, to address them. And for the sake of time, I think we should, we should move on and speak now uh, about the metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, so, Alicia, please. Yes. And again, if you have other questions, even about metastatic castration-sensitive disease, feel free to, uh, to, to send us your, your question. We'll, we'll try to take them. Thank you. All right. So let's dive into non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Um, so I think we should acknowledge when we're talking about this disease entity that there is a lot of confusion about what exactly it is. And some say this doesn't exist. And some say, you know, we treat it all the time. We see it all the time. The, the reason for the confusion comes because of the way that we've defined it. And this non-metastatic term, which is a term that was described back before we were routinely using PSMA PET imaging. The purpose of this slide is to share with everyone that when we defined non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, that was defined using conventional bone scans, MRIs even, and CT scans, and we could not identify any areas by these radiographic techniques of metastatic disease. However, when some investigators looked at patients with a rising PSA in a castrate level of testosterone and, and applied those criteria, found that they were non-metastatic, and then gave them PSMA PET scans, 98% of them had something that was identifiable on a PSMA PET. So if we have this population defined by our conventional imaging that is negative for radiographic evidence of disease, and we scan them with a PET scan, we're probably going to see something. 
That doesn't mean that they're not the same patient population. They're still the same people. And so this is non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. We need to, I think, remember that they are probably going to be PSMA PET positive. So there are multiple drugs available in this non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer setting. These are androgen receptor pathway inhibitors, as we've discussed, apalutamide, daralutamide, enzalutamide, and all of these are available in the United States, which is where this particular study, the DEER study, was performed. This was a study of real-world evidence um, from a cohort of, um, of clinics that are urology clinics, and they looked at the proportion of patients starting these AR pathway inhibitors and could identify and track changes in these RP prescriptions over the course of the study from 2019 through 2022 as various agents were approved. They also then looked at the discontinuation and progression uh, to metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer in those patients who were treated with each of the types of ARPIs and found that there was a lower rate of discontinuation in the darolutamide group than the other two groups, apalutamide and enzalutamide, in this particular real-world analysis and cohort. The reasons for discontinuation are listed here. Um, there was a lower risk of, or a lower rate of uh, adverse events causing discontinuation in darolutamide as compared to the other two. And other, otherwise, we can see maybe a lower rate of progression to metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer or death. And the other list, uh, options are listed here, including unique issues to the United States like reimbursement. Um, and I think we'll move on now to some uh, cases. Unless either of you wants to comment on non-metastatic CRPC, the challenges with imaging, we'd love to hear. Uh, you know, the German perspective is uh, a, a very strong one. So um, thank you for that. Uh, you know, first slide said on NMCRPC. Um, there are so many things to be said about imaging and what to do, what not to do. And there's such a heterogeneous um, landscape right now when it comes to the accessibility of modern imaging, PET scan imaging. The US, take, US has taken up so fast and you're doing so much PET scan imaging um, and now the field is evolving more and more. We've been doing this for many years, um, but the key question for me is, does a PSMA PET scan really resu result in a better patient outcome? Because you might actually see a patient shift towards a different stage of the disease, and then you offer different treatment, and then would that result in a better outcome? We don't know. And all this is ongoing. I think, the, for me, the, the most remarkable message from ASCO this year was the fact that if you use bone scans and you find M1 disease, on most PET scans, that positive disease was not seen anymore. It was actually an M0. So it is hard to discuss what to believe in and what not. I think when you make a long story short, um, we are facing a patient. If you have access to modern imaging, you will use it, um, but how you interpret this and how, what then to make out of these results is something else. And I think that's, this is very, uh, can be very different from patient to patient. That's my take. Um, and also, we now find that in PSMA PET scans, um, uh, there are some false positive results. We thought that that wouldn't exist, but it does. So I think the interpretation of a PET scan uh, takes some time and it's not as easy as we sometimes think. Well, I will give you the floor, Dr. Bratsky. So as um, Alicia elegantly pointed out, uh, that patient scenario usually shows you a patient that is asymptomatic 
Um, so that patient develops uh, non-metastatic CRPC. And uh, this is one stage before getting symptomatic, and that's, that's really important when talking about that stage of disease. What I would like to point out and emphasize during the next slide is the fact that the PSA doubling time seems to be of utmost importance in that patient cohort. Why? In men with CRPC, the doubling time is a very strong predictor for the speed of disease progression when it comes to the development of metastases and overall survival. So if you have a patient with a shorter PSA doubling time, which means less or equal than 10 months, they are at greater risk to develop metastases. And that's shown here in these graphs. You see on the left side the incidence of metastases by double, stratified by doubling time, and you see on the right side the relative risk for bone metastasis-free survival over uh, doubling time. And you see the more you go down on the right side, the more bone metastases you actually develop. So it's actually a very, very impressive um, uh, result and a very good parameter to base your decisions on. So um, doubling time is important. Maybe we can, we can use that for our next cases. So here's a gentleman. He is 73 years old. Um, he actually has had uh, external beam radiation treatment and ADT for two years. Um, following that, he has a normalized PSA and castrate levels of testosterone. We then went on with intermittent ADT, and uh, I'm sure most of you have listened this morning to Steve Friedland, was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the EMBARC trial, uh, where this old concept of intermittent uh, hormonal treatment comes up again. Um, and in that gentleman here, uh, he comes back with a rising PSA of 13.4, um, a doubling time of seven months, which is a very fast uh, doubling time, short doubling time, and still castrate levels of testosterone. Um, this gentleman now gets an uh, RP in addition to the ADT. Um, and the question is now, should we have, in this gentleman, remember, PSA is 13, should we have a PET scan here? So maybe I can ask you uh, in that situation, both of you, what you would do. Would you want to have a PET scan? Would you say, we actually don't need it because we have very good drugs at hand? Um, Dr. Fizazi. Um, I, I think the, the most important is indeed to, to recognize that the biology is, the cancer biology is driven most of the prognosis. Of course, together with comorbidities, if ever the patient has some. Um, but this is really the, the main thing I would uh, uh, focus on. And, and as you rightly said, PSWing time is telling us a lot. And it's not a good sign for a patient if they have a, a rapidly rising PSA. And we now have evidence from three randomized trials that AR pathway inhibitors should be used in these cases. Having said that, I would probably order a PSMA PET if available uh, to better understand and to better learn what the situation is for this gentleman. And I would very likely propose him to participate in a randomized trial testing local treatments on top of systemic treatment, including an AR pathway inhibitor, of course, if I can. Um, also, a minority of these men, about 20%, actually have only local relapses. And we don't really know whether a second or third sometime local treatment can still save 
and cure some of these men, of course, assuming this is technically possible and not too toxic. So all, are, all those are open questions. Of course, I don't have the answers, but if we don't do the PSMA PET, we will never know. So this is why I would probably do this. Alicia, maybe uh, I would love your comment on the US uh, opinion and what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that the most important thing has already happened for this patient. The patient has had intensified therapy by adding the AR pathway inhibitor. That is demonstrated to prolong metastasis-free and overall survival in this patient population. There is not good data, as you said, for any of our targeted localized treatments. I also would like to say that I think it's really important, especially in those patients with maybe a local-only local relapse, those are the patients who may benefit most, I think, from potential targeted treatments. And I have been amazed with the way that our radiation oncology team has been able to re-radiate areas that I previously believed were not able to receive further treatment. And the technology for our radiation oncologists has allowed some pretty impressive things. Radiating distant metastases in the castration-resistant setting has been very hit or miss from my perspective. And the reason to get a PET scan is really to understand exactly as uh, Kareem said, where is this thing that is making the PSA? So if there are multiple areas distant, this is not, this may be a game of whack-a-mole as has been described by our colleagues in the past that we may not go after all of these things where we may do more of that in a hormone sensitive setting and be more successful, but it is an absolutely a conversation with the patient. That being said, the PSMA PET is not available where you practice or you cannot get it for your patient. As long as you're intensifying systemic therapy, you are doing something to benefit the patient. And that piece should not be forgotten just to target and do local therapy and, and PSMA PET. It is the systemic therapy that we know can help our patients. Maybe if time allows, um do we have any comment on the EMBARC trial? Because we talked about intermittent uh, hormonal treatment and showing this morning by Steve Friedland. Uh, I think there were two aspects, uh, the intermittent hormonal treatment and the, um, the, the, the treatment vacation or treatment holiday, whatever you call this. And then, of course, debating whether or not you treat the patient with an ARPI alone having a high testosterone which allows a very short pause only, because the pause is shorter than adding actually uh, the ADT. Uh, can I ask you about your opinion on this trial and whether or not we could translate that? Okay. It's intensification at biochemical uh, relapse. Maybe a comment on that. Yeah, the, the, the situation of biochemical failure was really, I think, the missing part uh, in, in the puzzle, we, we, we have now strong evidence that an AR pathway inhibitor should be used in metastatic CRPC, in metastatic castration-sensitive disease, even in, in non-metastatic castration-resistant disease, and even in localized, very high-risk localized disease, thanks to stampede aberration. So this was right in the middle, and we now have a demonstration that treatment intensification for men with biochemical failures with potentially bad outcome based on, again, PSA double in time slash high glycerin score is the way forward. Now, actually, the, the, we don't really know what the right balance is between intensification and continuous treatment. Uh, so ju just for, for clarity, we've been using ARPA-free inhibitors continuously until progression in the advanced stages. But in patients with biochemical failures, but also in patients with high-risk localized disease, we may need six months, a year, two years, three years, I don't know what is the ideal duration, but not necessarily lifelong treatment. And of, of course, Embark is the first, 
we, we still need to fine-tune all these things, and at the end of the day, probably there will be some place for individualization. That's why, and the way here, Alicia, I saw your post that you're leading a great study, Aerostep. Uh, oh, thank you. Would you like to say a word about that study and what we can expect and when? Sure, and, and Kareem is very involved in this study as well, so should be acknowledged there too. So this is a study for patients with high-risk biochemical recurrence, similar to Embark, but all patients on this study need to have a positive PSMA PET scan. So a different population than Embark, they did not have PET scans at the time of that particular study. So for those patients, they are randomized to receive two years of ADT and darolutamide versus two years of ADT. And um, it is possible and, and uh, recommended, at least in my center, that all areas of the PSMA PET positive disease will be radiated. And we are following these patients for radiographic progression-free survival with a PSMA PET scan as the primary endpoint there, which is a completely novel endpoint. I'm very excited that we're doing this. We are, of course, looking at metastasis-free survival by CTs and bone scans to ensure that we can get some idea and understanding too of the crosswalk between PSMA PET positivity and when we may see those conventional imaging strategies or older traditional imaging strategies turn positive as well. Uh, but this, I think, will be hopefully uh, a positive study. But at any event, I, I think that it's wonderful that we're able to potentially change the trajectory of our patient's disease by this intensification strategy, but there's a time limit here. So we are not putting people in a situation where for indefinite periods of time, they will have hormonal therapy. So this patient in the United States would be treated or should be treated from my perspective as non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer by the definition of what that population was, which is a patient population with a rising PSA, with a castrate level of testosterone, with negative bone scans, CTs, or MRIs. It is, um, I think, not, it doesn't matter whether the PSMA PET is positive or negative, because as we saw, that population with the traditional images being negative, 98% of them who meet the criteria with that rapidly rising PSA would actually have a positive PET. So I don't think that the PET influences that initial definition of non-metastatic CRPC. That's particularly important in the United States because these disease definitions allow us to use or not use different agents. And so if we move and shift that patient from non-metastatic CRPC to metastatic CRPC, we do not have access to all of our treatment options in that setting. So that definition is very, very critically important to us. And I think we acknowledge that yes, there are metastases by PSMA PET, but still the patient meets the criteria of non-metastatic CRPC. Great answer. So I think it's a regulatory aspect to that too. Um, thank you very much. So uh, let's continue with our slides. Um, I think we covered this gentleman well. The next gentleman is 67 years old. He actually has had regular checkups. Um, he had had uh, radical prostatectomy and two years later, the PSA level rose. This is a very textbook typical patient that comes to our practice. PSA rose to um, 0.38 nanogram per mil. And then he received radiotherapy and ADT. Um, after this, following this, um, the PSA rose again to then three, and the doubling time was very short, four months. Testosterone was still at castrate levels, and the CT bone scans were negative. Then this patient received an ARPI, which in that case was enzalutamide, and then happened to complain about fatigue. And that's probably something that in our daily business, 
um, appears very often. I would actually consider changing this treatment um, just on the setting of fatigue, because we have three drugs available as ARPIs in the setting of non-metastatic CRPC, or um, PSMA PET positive uh, CRPC, I guess we could also rename it. Um, in this setting, if enzalutamide is causing fatigue, I may use another option, so I may use darolutamide, for example, with the less uh, crossing of the blood-brain barrier with this particular molecule. In any event, if I have to choose between these two, and you all had to choose between these two, um, I would say that I would probably um, wait for metastases. However, uh, I may, if this patient still has biochemical recurrence, actually use a PSMA PET scan to help me identify metastases, at least initially, again, to think about things like SBRT and other things that we had talked about, to try to keep the patient on this current systemic therapy actually as long as is possible and tolerated before I get overt metastases or symptomatic progression. I think this is a very complex disease state and is asymptomatic for the most part until we do something about it. And the longer we can keep a patient on treatment that is hopefully keeping the disease at least under some control, the longer I would like to do that. So I, I would say none of these answers, Christian. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be questions about this afterwards. And just um, piling up uh, the adverse event profiles of the RPs that we can use is based on the Spartan, Prosper, and Aramis trial, and you know the trials, and you know, I've just given you the one example of fatigue, which is obviously very different between the various drugs. And if you uh, look through the side effects, you will see that the side effect rate is the lowest in the Aramis trial. Um, so you may base your decision on that. Uh, I'm just bringing this up because I think it is important for us to remember when we select the, the appropriate uh, substance. And that's a very busy slide, and obviously I don't want to read you that, but um, it shows you that uh, the drug-drug interactions is very different when looking at apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darolutamide. And if you just look at the colors, uh, on the very right side, you see few colors. Uh, it's all grayish, which means there is very little drug-drug interaction. Uh, but with darolutamide, the only uh, situation where you have to pay attention is antibiotics. Um, and also statins. So that may be something that you would like to consider um, because drug-drug interactions, if you think our elderly population, plays an important and crucial role in selecting the right drug. So what would be interesting to know, and we would like to ask you this, uh, how often would you perform monitoring imaging for this patient? Yes, uh, I mean, generally speaking, I don't use a lot of imaging to follow this patient if their PSA is doing well. Also, I recognize that a minority of patients may actually develop cancer progression without PSA progression. So I tend to, to follow what most experts recommended at the APCC uh, consensus meeting when this exact question was asked, which is do uh, some imaging once every six to 12 months, which I think is reasonable and also kind of reassuring to patients, to be honest. Would you have any additional comments on that? Would you do it differently? I, I would do the same. And I think that this very clearly shows that we should try to come to some consensus in our guidelines and write that down so that there is some um, consensus and some standard by which we will follow the patients. If you all disagree, please write to Dr. Fisasi. We'll discuss it in a minute. <laughs> okay. So I think um, uh, this summarizes very nicely. Uh, we go to the next slide. The, the therapy decision, and you know the definition of non-metastatic CRPC 
based on a rising PSA, castrate, testosterone, and no radiologic evidence. We discussed that in detail um, based on these three trials on conventional imaging. Uh, and then again, it's very similar to the situation before in MHSPC where you have various factors which can be based on disease characteristics and or the patient characteristics. And it's usually the combination of both uh, when you make your treatment decision on. I would like to go to the question and answers. Uh, probably a difficult one for you, Alicia, if you don't mind. What about next treatment in a patient with uh, non-metastatic CRPC who's being treated with either darolutamide, apalutamide, or enzalutamide? What is your typical next treatment when they progress? That is a hard question. And it actually, of course, really depends on how they're progressing. Is this symptomatic progression? Is this rapid progression? Is the patient in crisis? In this case, it is a less challenging question because we can go to chemotherapy. If the patient is progressing with a minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic mild radiographic progression, this is where sometimes we think about radiation to oligometastatic or oligoprogressive sites. And there have been some patients, and I, I mentioned this before, it can be very mixed in the responses here, but some patients may get a reprieve and continue on their ARPI and ADT with the radiation to the area that's progressing. Um, I do think in the United States, we have access to Cipiolus-LT, which I think is also an option for this very asymptomatic population. And of course, we could think about things like radium if we have bone-only progression, though I usually like to do that when I have at least a few sites of bone disease because I would hate to use it, a bone-targeted therapy for a single area of metastatic disease in the bone. So this is a very complex thing. I think we need to make sure that we have done genetic testing, germline and somatic, and understand all of the options for the patient, and then try to think about how we best match the aggressiveness of the therapy to the aggressiveness of the cancer, and of course, consider what the patient's thinking about. And actually, I think tomorrow at the presidential session, we will learn more about whether PSMA lutation may be actually an option for some of these men. So stay tuned and come back to, to, tomorrow. Uh, if you want to ask a question, you, you may come to a mic. I think they work, hopefully, yes. Just talk, maybe? Yeah, yeah. thank yeah. you. Yeah, um, uh, thanks for these uh, nice presentations. But uh, my question actually about the patient comes from the urologist and the initial diagnosis after conventional scanning with no metastases. But the surgeon likes to make sure, because the PSA is above 20, so he sent all of the patient to PSMA, and when they come positive, he rejected the surgery on the basis that you are now metastatic. I cannot operate on you. So he comes to you to treat. Will you treat him as metastatic? or as non-metastatic? You want to take this one? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think for us it doesn't happen that often that usually the, the, if a high-risk patient is getting a PSMA PET scan, he's getting it up front. He's not just getting the conventional first and then the PSMA because he will get it up front. But the, and then you know, but the, the, the situation that you first do conventional imaging, and then you refer him to somebody else, and then he does the PSMA PET scan, and then it's that, then it's, then positive is pretty rare to my, uh, but it can happen. So what do I do if this happens? Uh, I would have to know the characteristics of this patient, uh, how old is he, um, how aggressive is the disease, 
Um, and what is the outcome of the PET scan exactly? Uh, like, does he have one blurry, maybe, metastases, and that's the reason why? Or does he have many? Because if he has many, then it's a different kind of shoe. So I really base it on what the PSMA PET scan shows in detail. Uh, but it would, I would discuss that. And then, of course, even being a surgeon, data speak right now for radiation. And even though I would love to say radiation, uh, surgery is better right now, data show radiation is better. Maybe we'll know in the future that surgery works as well, but then if he has an oligometastatic disease, I refer him to radiation, radiation oncologist. Yeah, he actually come to radio, I'm, I'm a onco clinical oncologist with radiotherapy. So when he come for treatment, should I just focus on treatment on the localized radiotherapy to the prostate, or should I treat him as metastatic, and he should have much more than ADTH and radiotherapy and something uh -huh. else? Because so, actually, it's been rejected and been told by other colleague, you are metastatic. So he come to you, to me, can I tell him you are not, meta not considering you that, or? Ah, so, so we see this relatively commonly in the United States because sometimes you have to go through the conventional imaging to get to the PET scan. So we, we, we do see this. We're not as advanced as Germany in this way. Um, but so we would treat this patient, I think, with radiation to the prostate, depending on the degree of metastatic disease. If it's really only some pelvic lymph nodes, we would also then, not we, my colleagues in radiation would treat the pelvic lymph nodes as well. In terms of the systemic therapy, we would do ADT and abiraterone. We would likely extend this for somewhere around two years based on the Stampede locally advanced disease uh, data. If the patient had more distant metastatic disease or more spots, if we could treat them uh, as oligometastatic, two to three spots, maybe we would use SBRT to those spots as well and continue our systemic therapy, maybe give the patient a break around two years, but this is there's no data here. You could continue indefinitely with your systemic therapy, and if much more widely metastatic, we would still radiate the prostate in all of these settings, radiating the prostate, um, but we would uh, continue the a ADT, AR pathway inhibitor, and keep that going probably indefinitely if we couldn't radiate all of the sites of metastatic disease. But these are the questions that we still need to answer. Absolutely. I think you have another, so if possible, short question, and we'll do our best for short uh, answers. In MZ-Rosherpc, uh, if we had bad positive oligometastatic disease, uh, can we add on uh, asperity on those metastases? It may be their only um, reason why to do PET scan. So as, should we do SBRT? Uh, Non-metastatic castration resistant with bad positive uh, oligometastatic disease. Should we add on SBRT? I think fair answer is that we don't know. Yeah. and that trials are really ongoing. And this is true for both castration-sensitive setting and also castration-resistant setting. We're waiting for the phase threes. There are a few randomized phase two, but we, of course, cannot trust them 100%. But they are rapidly unrolling these trials, and they are key, we all agree. Uh, another question to you, maybe, Christian, about that. Uh, does ADT, the, the, um, if you start uh, androgen deprivation therapy, is that going to mix up your results of that's, PSMA PET? That's a great question because it comes up all the time and I think we don't know the answer for sure. So my answer to the question is the following. If you think that the patient needs systemic treatment in the form of ADT, treat the patients with ADT because he needs that and don't delay the start of treatment because you think it might change the outcome in the PET scan. As long as we have no you know, strict evidence that it does change the outcome, um, I would you know, prioritize my treatment. And then 
regard the PCMA positivity as if it was the correct one. But I, the correct answer is I don't know for sure, but the treatment start, of, I mean, is, is, I wouldn't delay that. Uh, and most important is a big thank you for staying tonight and a big thank you to, to my co-faculties for their excellent talks early. I think we can applaud them oh. <laughs> already. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.